had been locked in a safe deposit box at Chase Manhattan for almost ten years. The only other previous mention he had ever made of them was to let me know that these heirlooms were there at the bank. On the phone, he had said in his calm and casual way that it was about time these items be turned over to me. Why the return? I had to find out. So at the end of my workday, after his phone call, I went home for the first time in three months. Since my workday didn't end until ten o'clock at night, I knew I'd find the door to our bedroom closed, and I'd be spending the night in the guest bedroom. In the morning, I found a note he had written for me, reminding me of my follow-up appointment with my psychologist. Her office had called our home as a reminder, and he was simply relaying the message. When he didn't show up for breakfast, Lucinda said that he had had an accident and had not been feeling well. An accident? Lucinda had nothing more to say. I left for the subway in a state of uncertainty, not knowing what had happened in the three months we'd been apart. That morning, the yellow and red leaves of New York City blazed. I hadn't seen them like that since I began law school at Columbia, and the frenetic pace of studying had numbed everything. I had been glad for the intense work schedule then, since I didn't have to think about my family, who had settled down in Houston, or about my husband pretending that the past he shared with my father in Vietnam did not exist. There had been a time in my former Saigon when Christopher knew my father as Hope, the journalistic stringer who helped newsmen of the Associated Press interpret South Vietnam's culture and politics, and passed on news tips that helped the reporters grasp the complexity of the war. In addition to his teaching position at the University of Saigon, my father did the stringer's job for Christopher without pay, believing that the West's accurate coverage of the war would ultimately help the public understand the South Vietnamese's cause against the communists. This was the goal he shared with Christopher, my father once thought. Instead of working, I spent the entire morning in Dr. Cookie D'Amico's office, discussing with her again my recurring dream. I tried to describe the lush green rainforests turning swiftly into the low charcoal sky of the highlands, the sky brightened only by the wildflowers blooming beside the red dirt road. In my dream, topless Montagnard women with dark brown torsos climbed the winding slopes on bare feet. I could feel the sprinkling rain of the highlands and the ache in my knees when I tried to run uphill after the women. I ran until the foliage and the cliffs telescoped into blackness and were replaced by the lithe bodies of the royal dancers of central Vietnam. They held buds of lotuses in their hands, and their legs bent into a diamond shape while their lovely heads tilted beneath gold and jade headpieces. Then a fog swept through the dancers and cleared to reveal a procession of coffins floating on a silent river. In the dream, I could feel intense heat rising off the coffins as they passed, heat that drowned my lungs and nostrils until I woke up choking. All of this was deja vu. It was this disturbing dream that caused me to move out of the apartment. We had been together almost ten years when I decided to reveal the dream to Christopher. A few days after hearing about the dream, my husband gave me Dr. Cookie D'Amico's office number. Dr. D'Amico is Southeast Asian like me, and he thought she would be of help. I began seeing her, and after a few months, Dr. D'Amico, the psychologist, gradually became Ms. Cookie, my friend, although initially I was a little suspicious of the psychologist's pep talks. I told her what I knew from my heart, that the dancers were the women of the extinct culture of Champa. She did some research and formed a theory about the connection between my central Vietnamese ancestry and the story of the Chams, an extinct race. I was too strong-willed to believe entirely in Western psychotherapy, although in Ms. Cookie I eventually confided all of my fears. Since the fall of Saigon, I had dreaded any kind of separation. 
the anxiety of leaving a place knowing perhaps I will never see it again. Cookie said the anxiety naturally must have come from my traumatic departure from Vietnam. The whole circle of my husband's friends in New York City must have heard of my airlift escape from Saigon in 1975, atop the U.S. Embassy, during the last hours before the Russian tanks rolled toward Saigon's presidential palace. I'd heard enough comments made behind my back at cocktail receptions and Christmas parties. The story went that I was my husband's underaged, mail-order bride straight from a refugee camp. I'd never bothered to correct the record. Technically, I was not a mail-order bride because we actually met in Saigon days before the change of guards. Initially, I had gone to see Cookie only to please my husband because, after all, he was paying her enough money to feed a whole Vietnamese village. Having a shrink was part of my becoming American, something considered trendy in my Manhattan life, like the fox coat he had bought me as a birthday present to protect my fragile frame from New York's harsh winters.